It is so good to see everyone tonight. I want to thank the group here because we are not afraid to explore any topic in Scripture. We have had in the recent past couple months lessons on homosexuality, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, modesty, and the list goes on. If the topic is in the Scriptures, we're willing to talk about it. And that can't be said for a lot of groups that meet around us. And so I'm thankful and appreciative that that is the heart and the spirit that we have. Because we know, as we alluded to this morning, that we've been called out of this world. Romans 12 and verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Tonight, we're going to look at the Bible and seek to understand God's view, God's thoughts on alcohol, social and moderate drinking is a big issue in the society that we live today. It's just not our times. We're going to see that this goes back for decades, centuries, millennia. So what does God say about the fermented wine or alcohol in the Bible? The first thing we're going to do tonight is take an overarching view. Very quickly touch on some fundamentals. And then for me it's helpful, and I hope it will be for you, to explore the rest of what the Bible has to say on this topic. We're going to answer questions. Questions that have sort of fictional uh, given a lot of bad information. Uh, you may call them myths or fictional uh, responses to this topic, but they don't lie in scriptures. And we're going to parse that. And hopefully by looking at those questions and looking at what the Bible says, we're going to gain this comprehensive view and at the same time arm you with the ability when you're talking to those in the world in the religious community or other brethren that have gone astray on this topic, you will now be armed with some basic fundamentals on how to approach the topic with them. So the first is, and we have touched on this before here, that God demands sobriety. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, we see, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We also see in 1 Peter 5 and 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So, the word sober here can be translated from two Greek words. The Holy Spirit in both of these passages used the Greek word nepho. And to help us look at and just not take one source, I went and found a variety of sources that defines nepho. None of these sources have an agenda. None of these sources have an ax to grind on the topic. They are just defining the word. And when we go to those, the New Englishman's Greek concordance, it says that nepho means to abstain from wine, thus to be sober. The Kittle's 
theological dictionary of the New Testament, completely unaffected by wine. Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible, to abstain from wine. Lyndall Scott, to be sober, drink no wine, and vines to be free from the influence of intoxicants. It is always assumption of alcohol when the Bible commands us to abstain. Not so that we look bad and foolish with our friends when we are at a work meeting or uh, we have gone out to dinner. Not so that we can't have a quote-unquote, as the world would say, a good time, as the world would like you to believe. No. Remember what we read in 1 Peter 5, 8? God says to abstain from alcohol. Because if we don't remain sober, free from intoxication, and not just do that, but also remain vigilant, you will be utterly consumed or devoured by the devil. My dear brethren, if that does not send shields down your back or highlight the importance of the topic that we are looking at tonight, then I don't know what will. The effort of men to justify the consumption of alcohol has eternal consequences. And therefore, we need to prepare ourselves so that we don't become fooled by this foolishness that exists all around us. So with this foundation, we're going to dive in. We're going to look at a lot of claims that are out there. And I hope at the end of this, it will paint a picture of the Bible's comprehensive view on this idea or this topic of socially or moderate drinking. The first one we're going to look at is only drunkenness is condemned in Scripture. More times than not, you will typically hear one of two arguments. I can socially consume alcohol without becoming drunk. Or the Bible only says drunkenness is a sin. I'd like us to read Galatians 5, 21. Envy, murderers, drunkenness, rivalries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to highlight two words. Drunkenness. We are uh, not, there we go. Drunkenness is the Greek word methe. Rivalries is the Greek word komos. It's important because a lot of the world, as we already mentioned, says, hey, the Bible only condemns drunkenness. So the Greek word, let's start with, with methe. Thayers and others define this as simply intoxication or drunkness. I've heard brethren and others argue that there's an inferred degree of intoxication in this word to reach the level of drunkness, but that's not the case. And there are resources galore that push no agendas that will not collaborate that idea. Intoxication occurs when you take the first sip of alcohol. And drunkness occurs when you take the first sip of alcohol. There is no difference in the word itself. Sure, people become more intoxicated or they become more drunk with the more sips they take. 
But from the beginning, they've crossed the line that we previously established of abstaining or sobriety. Additionally, as we look at this word, my, my screen had moved past the screen, so we're on the same now. We see komos, the Greek word translated rivalries, oftentimes, and we're going to see this in a few other locations, and does indicate a level of intoxication or drunkenness. Thayers defines it as follows. In the Greek writings properly, a nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity and sing and play before the houses of their male and female friends, hence used generally a feast and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry. So for those that want to put their flag down, and say that the Bible only condemns drunkenness, when you read Galatians 5.21, what they are telling you or trying to convince you of is that it says envy, murderers, those who are drunk, those who are drunk, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is not what it is saying. What it is saying instead is that those who take and drink and become intoxicated and those that go out partying and get drunk in that environment, see, it's similar, but it's not the same. And this isn't the only place we see this distinguishment. But for time, we're going to continue. Ephesians 5. And 18 says, and do not be drunk with wine in which disposition, but be filled with the spirit. Notice the phrase that everybody keys on. Do not be drunk with wine. The Greek word here is different, but it has the same root of metho that we just previously looked at. This Greek word is methis, methisko which has the root word of intoxication or drunkenness. Thayer's defines this as to intoxicate, make drunk, to get drunk, become intoxicated. Vines define this as become intoxicated or to really say for Christians or followers of Christ is not to begin the process of intoxication. But the writer didn't leave us with no direction. Notice what is compared. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dis dissipation. Now, that is not a word we use all the time. It comes from a Greek word, estia, which is dissipation, which means to abandon desolate life, profligacy, and prodigality. What that is, we can draw a picture of the prodigal son, right? So this idea of um, not remaining that if you start or that you become intoxicated, it's going to fill you with a life and actions and activities that are not becoming of a Christian. However, in comparison, we're told to be filled with the Spirit. If you were to continue reading the context of Ephesians and go further and look at 
verses 11 and 14, we see this idea of light and darkness that is being compared. And this idea that is being articulated very clearly is be filled with the spirit, good things, light, and not those things of darkness and of evil. First Peter four and three, we have to hit this before we continue on because it carries with it with the idea that we saw in Galatians chapter five. When we read for the first time past our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust. So those are two similar things, but different sins. And then Peter's going to define three specific levels or only of revelings, comos. That's a word we've seen before already. And banquetings, potos. Now, that is a different word than what we previously looked at with methe. That is different. And abominable idolatries. So let's look at the three words, the three different ideas here that they're being told do not participate in. Do not copy what the Gentiles are doing. The first is oniophagia is the Greek word for excess of wine. This is a compound word in the Greek, which is onos, wine, which is a very broad word, can mean fermented or unfermented, and bubble up or fluo. And so it refers to someone who is overflowing in wine, drunk or drunkard. It's drunkenness or excess of wine or overflow of wine. It's this idea of someone who can't even stand up, basically. They are completely and absolutely at the highest level of intoxication. They can't function, is the idea of the word here. Komos is the Greek word for revelings. We've already discussed this and how that it is usually described in the Greek when it's connected to festivals, feast days, or revelings where heavy drinking was a focus with others possibly for pagan gods, although pagan worship is not inherent in this word with drinking. But this is where a lot of people get into crazy gymnastics is on this last one. Pultos. We have seen logically this idea or a progression thereof of intoxication. Pultos is a Greek word for banquetings as defined here. Thayers would say drinking or carousing. Those words are not really common words today, we would call it uh, dinner parties or a maybe perhaps a cocktail party would be the level idea that is being translated here. But it's the only place it occurs in the New Testament. So when you go back to the Septuagint, they actually use this word in quite a few locations throughout the Old Testament. This word can mean anything from drinking water to having excess. Third people fermented wine. So it has a broad meaning. And I have heard people use that broad meaning to say, this isn't a progression. This is just God telling you three different ways, the exact same things, not to get drunk. If you hear that, ask them, well, isn't lust and lasciviousness similar, but different in application and focus in a Christian's life? And they would obviously answer, the, answer that question, yes. But when it comes to this and they have an agenda, they will not take that and they will try to manipulate it. But clearly we see, just like we did in Galatians chapter 5, that God is warning against becoming intoxicated 
being around this fermented wine or alcohol. And subsequently, there is a warning to um, obviously not go further than that as well in the various cases that he gives. In this case, being flat out can't walk full level of drunkenness or in the cosmos going to a party where that is the focus and the outcome. Next, we're going to look at the idea and the proclamation is that wine in the Bible is always alcoholic. I have been told this by elders. I've heard this from pulpits by elders and by preachers and by deacons all around this area. This is not an uncommon thought and proclamation that is made. But the question is, is that the case? This first chart comes from Jeremiah Cox. Um, I liked its simplicity and how it quickly gave this comparison on if you want to take that approach, we have a problem, a really big problem. And that problem is that the Bible contradicts itself because in one place it highlights good things about it and in another place it says this is bad. So it can't be talking about the same thing. That would not make sense. So his chart that he had real quick was, you know, it refers to wine and blessings in Psalms 104, 14 through 15 versus a cursing in wine and 215. And we're going to look at that here in just a minute in more detail. Gathered wine and summer fruits uh, in Jeremiah 40, 12 is a mocker in Proverbs 21. Alcoholic wine is not found on a vine. Uh, grapes with precious uh, juice that did not copy uh, right. I copied my note there. Sorry. Um, Obviously, uh, with Jeremiah 40, 12, we're not talking about alcoholic wine being gathered with the summer fruits. That's, that would be the grape juice, right? That's, that's the fresh. That's usually how it's used there. Um, sorry for including my note. Uh, spiritual blessing in Isaiah 55, 1 versus divine wrath um, referenced in Psalms 60, uh, verse 3. So we have these comparisons. Obviously, there's something going on here with different uses of words. Brother uh, Dave Hart, did some extensive research on this and went through the Bible. And I can't say it is every situation or circumstance where wine is condemned or the consumption associated therewith is, but it's a lot. There's 76. We're not going to read all of them, and we're not even going to go through them in uh, any uh, shape or form, but they are in the PowerPoint. And I highly encourage you to go through that and look at it other uh, in its uh, totality. Brother Dave Hart and several other brethren that I have uh, studied this with through the years has said that um, their position is that there are more scriptures condemning the use of alcoholic beverages than will be found on the subjects of lying, adultery, swearing, cheating, hypocrisy, pride, or even blasphemy. And so we're going to just flip through this for a second. They're all here and they're flipping on my screen, but not on this screen. All of the reference is that he was able to, uh, to come up with that every single one of these condemns or has some sort of condemnation towards fermented wine or the consumption of alcohol. And guess what? That proclamation of the first point, that only the Bible talks about drunkenness 
again, misused. We just discussed that that's really meant intoxication and happens at the first time you refuse to abstain. There are a lot here that don't deal with that. And so that's a false flag that they're trying to distract you from of the real matter. Next, we have a list. This is for those who want to profess that wine has always, 100% of the time throughout history, meant fermentation or alcoholic. Here is, um, this list was put together by Brother Jeff Belknap, and he highlights 30. We're not going to look at them all. We're going to go through time, and we're going to go down to uh, number 30, if I can get caught up. Okay, 1855, I'm sorry, it's at the bottom. Encyclopedia Americana, they have no agenda in this discussion and debate and review of the topic that we're having. It says, quote, the juice of the grape, when newly expressed and before it began to ferment, is called must, and in common language, sweet wine. Today, it is true that if we use the word wine, that it is fermented wine or alcoholic wine. But we have 30 examples here, and there are a lot more that can be uncovered, that say that that has not always been the case. So once again... That is not a good place to make an argument to try to prove to so, that you have the ability to socially or moderately drink. Next, for time, um, we're not going to go through uh, all of these, but these are the um, typical words, uh, Greek words, that are, def um, that are translated into wine. So just like sleep, you can be literally physically sleep or you can be dead, sleeping, same English word, but very different Greek words. No different for love, no different for wine. There are quite a few words. You can categorize them into tables. I encourage you to go back and look at that. We've reviewed this before, so I don't want to spend a ton of time. The big point here is it doesn't take us long to debunk the common myths that all wines referenced in the Bible are alcoholic or fermented. Just some simple review can take this off of the table and should not be considered in the discussion. Next, um, Jesus turned the water to wine. Many will profess that this is, um, this is fermented wine that Jesus uh, turned um, the water to. Most people hone in on uh, verse 10, and we'll read that. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when he guests have drunk, well drunk, then the inferior you have kept the, uh, um, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Well, obviously, this is the way the argument usually goes. Obviously, the good wine means the really strong, powerful, alcoholic wine. And the inferior is this, this grape juice substance that nobody really cared for. That's usually how the argument goes. And that just is, is not what is being said. So I would encourage us when those observations are being made to us that you could turn around and say, first of all, let's step back. 
Jesus, the Son of God, ground, planting a seed, creating a vineyard, collecting the grapes, and squeezing out the juice of the grapes into a split second. That was a miraculous event that occurred. Jesus took out the time factor and took water, which a grape is the majority of, water, and created grape juice in the blink of an eye. So let's first step back and recognize, because a lot of people don't go to John 2, 1 to 11, because they don't want to deal with this controversy that has been created. My position is, this is an incredible miracle that was performed by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is not a passage that we should run away from. Second, fresh, fresh grape juice was something that society, not just those professing to follow after Christ, thoroughly enjoyed and sought after. So the idea that in our minds the good must mean something, well, first you would have to look at the words. And there's no indication that the words selected here are fermented only Greek words. There's no indication from the text that you get that conclusion from unless you're reading something into it. And then lastly, it's very important to notice the Bible verse we said we were going to come back to at the very bottom. And that verse is Habakkuk 2.15. Woe to him who gives, his gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, so that you may look on his nakedness. What few failed to realize that make this argument is that the group that had gathered had consumed somewhere in the range of 120 to 160 gallons of this substance already in the night. When Jesus refilled up the empty barrels, they are now introduced to another 120 to 160 gallons of this substance that is uh, being referred to. If it was alcoholic or fermented, as some would like you to believe, what would that mean about Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Would he have honored Habakkuk 2.15 in his actions? No, he would sin. And there are many other references. This is what you would have to say about our Lord, Savior, and Jesus Christ that evening. He created a substance that mocks and destroys Leads to poverty, woes, sorrows, babblings, worries without cause, impairs judgment, flames passion, enslaves, and so many other references that were in that 76 list that we didn't go through. Is that what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did that night? No, that is not what He did. And it's a shame that so many are blaspheming the name of Jesus by proclaiming it was something that it was not. Next, Paul told Timothy to drink alcohol. This is found in 1 Timothy 5.23. The passage reads, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. A sincere and honest Bible student must first admit that the context of this passage does not provide enough clarity to determine if this was fermented or non-fermented wine. The Greek word here does not always mean one or the other. So that has to be acknowledged right out of the gate. I've heard 
well-spoken, well-studied men through my life, as I'm sure many of you have, that can make an eloquent claim that this was fermented and what I want, this was unfermented. We're not going down that path tonight. My position and what I want you to consider is that the context and the words chosen do not distinguish this for us. Regardless of the state, however, there are some important things we can walk away with. The first is, this is clearly discussing a medicinal purpose, regardless of the position you take. Second, it's limiting it to a little consumption mixed with water. Thirdly, um, I'm sorry, I combined the two. <laughs> it, it's a little consumption and it's to be diluted with water. Now, there are some that really, really, really like the King James Version and the American Standard Version. Because if you read those two translations, um, they like to proclaim that the prohibition was not on this medicinal use, but was on the water. And that is two translations that I do not agree with the translation. If you spend any time looking at lexicons and Greek sources, you will not come away with that, uh, that, um, that position. This is from the New King James version, and a lot of the other versions translate it very similar to this. Um, but I was caught off guard in a meeting one time when an elder looked me straight in the face and said, you know, the prohibition there was really on water. <laughs> and I'd never heard that before. And so I had to go do a little bit of research. And the, the, proof, or the, the purpose behind his stance is he was trying to come up with moderate and social drinking excuses. And this was one of his go-to passages. It's not what the text says. Um, I think the important uh, matter here is that, again, for medicinal purposes and uses, at best provides um, no other allowances for social or moderately consumption. And due to time tonight, uh, we are not looking at the so-called health benefits of wine, but uh, Mark and I have shared many of uh, uh, links back and forth. Uh, CDC will not even recommend someone starting the consumption of fermented or alcoholic wine. Uh, the, uh, there are tons of studies now showing the links to variety of cancers, um, dementia, and a variety of things that involve and we UK of the brain. And, and that's simply because alcohol is working like it does and we use in the natural world around us, in the physical world. It, it doesn't know that it's entered your body. So it does the exact same thing. So it, it's going to attack the same organs and tissues in the same way that it, we use it in the physical realm to do the purposes we need it to do. And so we're not going down that path tonight, although that could have clearly been one of the items we looked at. Next, deacons aren't to drink much wine. First Timothy 3 and 8, we read, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. So first, if we look at these uh, couple passages, both in First Timothy and Titus, that are talking about the appointment of deacons and elders, we're going to notice a couple things. I tried to summarize those for time's sake to show that if this is where you go to defend moderate or social drinking, you have problems with the argument at best. So first, elders, vigilant, nephilios, that is to abstain. Verse 3, not, do not be given to wine, me porian. Deacons, which we just read, 1 Timothy 3.8, literally translation is 
being addicted to much wine. Deacon wives, Nephilius, same as the elder, abstain. Aged men, same as the elder and the deacon wives, abstain. Nephilios, aged women, again, goes back and references the same phraseology that the, is referenced in 1 Timothy 3, 8 with the deacon. So if you want to take this as your stance, we have elders that must abstain. We have deacons' wives that must abstain. And we have aged men that must abstain. But their spouses don't have to. That doesn't make any sense. Now the problem is, is we don't have a problem when we use this phrase of speech that is used here in 1 Timothy 3.8 and other locations to understand what is actually being said. And I'm going to just quickly look at four to help drive home the point. Romans 6.12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Can you sin as long as it doesn't reign or rule your body? Is that, is that what the passage says? How about Ecclesiastes 7.17, be not overmuch wicked. Can we be a little wicked? 1 Peter 4, 4, wherein they think they strange that you run not with them in the same excess of riot. Would running with them in some lesser level not would be all of a sudden acceptable? Proverbs 23, 22, hearken unto thy father that begot thee and despise not thy mother when she is old. Can we despise her when she's young? The point makes no sense that everyone seeks to obtain. To say not to become addicted does not take away the idea that you can just do some. As we clearly see in these other passages, but somehow everybody forgets when they get to 1 Timothy 3.8. That's not a point that we can rest on or look at or depend upon. Next, the fruit of the vine on the Lord's table was alcoholic. I don't know where this started, but I did find an article. And I know this article and this magazine has a pretty big following. And in the 1960s, they wrote an article. And this was the conclusion of the article. Quote, I copied it. No alterations. In conclusion, let's stay with what the Bible says. Either grape juice or fermented wine, either, meaning either option, grape juice or fermented wine, fulfills or is encompassed in the scriptural authority of the fruit of the vine. Of how they came there. It was, you would expect it to be by the word of God and looking at scriptures and its authority. No, this is literally what they say. Whether the prohibition of the old law against leaven included fermented wine or not, it is the testimony of history that the Jews did not consider such to be the case. The second reason that was given in this article, they had a conversation with a Dallas rabbi who was of the conservative sect. And there are many people that have gone astray from this article because I've heard it quoted more one time, especially here in this local area. The book of tradition, Jewish traditions, I, I just want to stop for a second. Do the Pharisees and the Jews have a history of not remembering their history or getting things messed up with their traditions? I mean, if that, that doesn't even pass the go test, like... I don't understand, but, but let's continue. If this author would have done something, the internet wasn't around then, 
I understand that. But you and I can actually go and look in the Mishnah, which is a book of Jewish traditions, in, and I cannot say this word, Pesim 3.1. I actually looked it up last night because I was like, I'm taking a whole bunch of quote and people I trust, but I'm kind of curious if you can find it. You can, and guess what? They translated the Greek for you, so you don't have to be a Greek scholar. And this is what it says in Pesim 3.1. These also must be removed at Passover. Babylonian porridge, Median beer, Edomite vinegar, and Egyptian barley beer. You know what it goes on to say that the Jews have put in this book? And, and again, this is not where we start our argument. We're going to look at a couple scriptures. But this was the argument of the article. Women's, um, women's product, that. it goes on to list elements and it had to be removed from the house, uh, like makeups and stuff like that. It goes on to list a whole bunch of stuff. So let this not be us. Let's not call a rabbi, which I've called, and, and they do not acknowledge their history on a variety of subjects. I was just curious and explored some others. And offline, we can have conversations about those. But that is no stance to make an argument and, and position on. Even if the Mishnah had been revised to take this out like they should, because that's not how the Jew today practices the Passover, because they use fermented wine. They could have at least revised that out of there so it's not in there anymore. But that's not what had been done, and, and that definitely should not be used as an argument. Matthew 26, 29 is where we see the fruit of the vine. Uh, it also occurs in uh, the book of Mark and Luke. And it says, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now or until that day when I drink new with you in my Father's kingdom. Throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, using and referencing the fruit of the vine in this way that the author did is to distinguish and bring emphasis and to highlight that it's grape juice versus using the more common language and words that had dual meanings. This is not a new practice and this has been used uh, throughout the Bible. Additionally, people to try one last Hail Mary to get this um, point across, use 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one, For an e eating, everyone taketh before his own supper and one is hungry and the other is drunken. Again, taking an English word and drawing a whole bunch of conclusions that never existed in the Greek. So the Greek word here comes from metheo, and it's translated as drunken. And this word has several meanings. You can look in a variety of places in the Bible. It can mean to be drunken or inebriated, that it is used that way. Or it can be mean to field, plentiful, fed. And that is the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some were completely full, and the divisions were creating because some weren't much less the idea that that wasn't even the intent of the Lord's Supper in the first place. But the idea of being full and of with plenty and those not having any is, is a clear contextual uh, argument that can be made and to be looked at. This next one shocked me the first time I heard it because it was, again, in, a, in the same meeting that some of these others were pointed out, and that was Jesus was a wine bibber. If he never consumed fermented wine, then he could not have been called that. And this is just, again, blasphemy, similar to Jesus turning the water to wine. In 
this occurs in Matthew eleven nineteen and in Luke seven thirty four, and this is the scripture. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus, Pino, used here, is simply referencing drinking, not the substance in any way, shape, or form. And if we look at the context back up one verse, Pharisees were known to make claims that weren't true. What does the verse right before this passage say? For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Did John, who baptized and led the way before Jesus, did he have, was he demon-possessed? No. But they want you to take 1119 and draw that conclusion with Jesus and not take the conclusion, the same conclusion and logic in 11 and 18, and that is not right. Next, the... We are asked to believe for those that take this position that this is the only sin where moderation is okay. A couple um, weeks ago, we had a lesson here and it was all around Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And out of that lesson, our families come out with the slogan, let's flee, abhor and resist evil and sin. And that's what the Bible teaches there is no sin that varies degrees based on who you are as a person. Your weight, genetics, your God-given gender, your parent history while you were in the womb, how much food you have eaten, etc. All have an impact on how quick and how serious the effects of alcohol impacts an individual. This is completely inconsistent with the entire Bible that there would be some one sin and only one sin that you don't have to flee, abhor, and resist. It does not exist, and that is not something that we should tolerate. They couldn't prevent, uh, couldn't prevent uh, fermentation in the Old Testament. They, they have the ability, they could boil the grapes, filtration through filters. They had incredible ability to seal. Uh, there was a discovery just a few years ago where they pulled up the wreckage of a 2,000-year-old like uh, uh, shipwreck, and the contents inside the bottles were uncontaminated, meaning no salt water had creeped in for 2,000 years in, in, in the saltwater environment. So did they have the ability to seal? Yes, they did. Added elements to the juice, such as sulfur, could stop fermentation, keep the juice cool. Proverbs 19.1.5 actually talks about this idea that um, you make grape juice um, into a thick syrup or these little bars that they would have. They would slice them and they would put them in water and you would be able to have grape juice. It would dissolve. So we have these cases, but look at the very bottom. An important note. It is not for long periods of time. So... If you want to make the case that they couldn't keep the grape juice, then you got to make the case they couldn't keep the fermented wine and that it would all turn into vinegar, which was a problem, but they had methodologies and practices to keep it from doing such. That's the last state of de degradation. You get the pure grape juice, that ferments to fermented wine with alcoholic content, and then it goes to what on the cross was uh, given to, uh, was put up to Christ's mouth, but it did not say he took, was sour wine or vinegar. That's the process. 
That's what happens. And if you can't stop it at any one of those states, you end up at vinegar every single time. And we know that's not the case in the Old Testament. So in conclusion, we've hit a lot of different topics. To many of you in the audience, this is not new, but to some it is. It's important to understand that this topic is, is a serious one. It has internal consequences if we remember 1 Peter 5, 8, where we were commanded to be sober. Because when you're not sober and you're not vigilant, Satan knows it. The devil's waiting, and he has one goal. It says it in that passage, to devour you. I wish more congregations would talk about the Bible's view on alcohol because we all need to be reminded, our kids need to hear it, and we cannot forget the consequences. So God demands sobriety, period. And hopefully these myths of only drunkenness is condemned, we saw that was not the case. Wine in the Bible is only alcoholic. We saw that's not the case. Jesus turned the water to wine. No, he turned it to grape juice. Paul told Timothy to drink alcohol. Whether it is fermented or unfermented, it was for a medicinal purpose and a very, um, it was to be diluted and it was to be in a small amount. Deacons aren't to drink much wine is a phrase, but does not give any ability to consume some. The fruit of the vine on the Lord's table was alcoholic. We saw that that was not the case. Jesus was a wine bibber. That was a pharisaical lie or a Jew lie. The only sin where moderation is okay, all sin needs to be abhorred, resisted, and fled. And they couldn't prevent fermentation. We saw that that was not the case. As we conclude this study tonight, we started with this passage, but hopefully with a lot of the words we have defined and looked at throughout the scriptures, I've highlighted some things that hopefully mean something maybe a little more in depth than it did at the beginning when Brother Joseph read it for us. So we're going to conclude with this. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 5 through 8. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and let us be sober. For those who sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. If you have any need, please come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song.